Well, Shalom Church, once again, blessed to be before you this weekend, and it is really an awesome privilege and an honor to get a chance not just to be the person that speaks to you this morning, but to get to serve alongside of all the high school students that I work with on a weekly basis. I'm really proud of them because they have stepped out and they want to be used to influence, to inspire and impact you so that you can have a weekend where you can just focus on growing and they're going to do all the serving. And so I'm really proud of them. I'm thankful for them. And uh, for those of you that are watching online streaming, um, you look great in your pajamas and you have that uh, like kind of bedhead. Awesome. So we have a lot of ground to cover Um, this morning. We actually have six distinct passages that we're going to be going through. And so it's going to feel like we're jumping from mountaintop to mountaintop, but they're all going to be in the same range. And so um, we're going to dive right in. We're in part 30 of the Being Jesus series, and we're near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And then we're also all over the book of Luke today. And today we're going to be looking at prayer. And... uh, Prayer is something that I think when we first hear it, we get excited, and then we also get a little thrown off, because a lot of us would say, yeah, my, my prayer life's okay. I mean, the number one thing I hear from people is they go, I could work on my prayer life, right? We say that because we seem to recognize that our communication with God can sometimes seem so weak. Some of us are like, man, I'm in an awesome spot right now. I feel like I'm in direct communication with God all the time. But one of the things we start learning is that prayer is not a one-act-only action. It's not just words shot out to God that you say them. And for a lot of people, I always hear them say that they pray, and it feels like their prayers just go up and hit the ceiling and come back down. Prayer, I often say, and you'll see it as the title on your, on your bulletin, prayer sometimes feels a little bit like it should be a CB radio. I had a CB radio in my van when I was a high school student. Yes, I had a 1987 Aerostar van. That was my first car. And, um, and one of the things you learn with a CB radio is that prayer, or is that communication between people is what that is for. It's not for you just to talk into it, for nobody to respond. Just like CBs are meant for communication between people, prayer is supposed to be communication between God and us. We talk, God speaks. God talks, we listen. Right? God hears, we hear, God speaks, we speak. Both are supposed to happen. It's supposed to be back and forth like a CB radio. And I think one of the questions that we have to launch into to kind of start even into these passages is do we have the humility to ask how to pray more often, to realize that there's something lacking, that there's something to be learned and something to be gained in our communication to God, that it's not just something to work on, but it's something that's a necessity That if we don't have a vital prayer connection with God, where in the world is our relationship with him then? Do we ask the question enough, how do I meet and talk to God? Because one of the things I learned, even as I studied this, is that I know a lot about prayer, but I don't always know why or how to pray. And I think a lot of us in the church are in that same spot. And so if God wants us to talk to him, why don't we do it? What are some of the barriers? And I want to give you four that I think set us up for what we're going to be going to in these passages. The first barrier to us praying to God is time. We are so busy. We are so busy that we don't even have a small bit of time to slow down and talk to God. We fill our time all the the time. Second thing is faith. 
We don't really believe that if we ask, it will happen. Some of us have prayed. We've tried praying, but it feels like when we've prayed, God has not responded. And so it's like our faith feels like it gets knocked down a level every time it feels like God does not respond. Third thing is fear. We're afraid that if we ask and it's not the right request, that God is somehow going to respond in a negative way. That's why we give God options in our prayers often. Right? We go, well, God, you could have it this way, or God, you could do it this way, whatever way you want to do, God. But we're almost afraid and when we're asking that if we ask it the wrong way or if something isn't right, then he won't respond in any way. But then I think the fourth thing that's a barrier, and to me this is the hardest one, is ourselves and other people. That rather than going to God to solve anything in our life or meet our needs, we go to other people or we go to ourselves. And we get so used to doing that that we don't see the reason why we have to pray to God. But the motivation to pray stems from our relationship to the Father through the Son. And you're going to see that come up in passage after passage. The power in prayer is whom you pray to. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to actually tackle this in two different ways. We're going to consider first the answering of prayer before we talk about how to pray. Because I think we tend to spend more time getting taught or seeing how to pray by things that we watch or we've experienced than actually understanding what Jesus has said about prayer. Because he has said a lot So if you see the the fill-in-the-blank on your bulletin, this is what it says, and it's such a profound statement. We must grasp tightly onto that certainty that God listens and responds. What matters most is not the strength of our prayers, but the fact that God hears them. What matters most is that God hears your prayers. You're going to hear me say that like 50 times this morning, because we need to hear that to know that God answers and hears our prayers to believe that he listens and acts, that our prayer has an influence in our relationship with God. That God will display his greatness through Christ by engaging with our prayers. This truth that God hears and God answers is what will compel you to pray and it will help you learn how to pray. It's going to bring you stability as you learn to live a kingdom life in a fallen world. And so if you have a Bible, you want to start in Luke chapter 11 verses 5 to 8. They're going to put it up on the screen as well, but Luke 11, 5 to 8 is going to be one of three passages that's going to tackle this question, is it worth praying to God? Because it doesn't seem like anything happens. Does God answer prayer? Let's see what Jesus says. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he, his friend, will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Then Jesus gives the summary of it. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his audacity, his shamelessness, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And so Jesus is coming out with this main point. Will God respond to a person in need? And the answer is yes. Yes, God is gracious and he engages with our requests. And Jesus tries to enter you into a situation, a family, a community, a neighbor friend situation where he says, imagine that you're in this spot. Whether you're the person that a visitor showed up late at night and you have to go to your neighbor and ask for this, or you're the neighbor. 
or the friend that somebody comes over. Now, in our day and age, nobody would do this because we have 24-hour markets. I mean, how, when was the last time you went to a neighbor at midnight and said, hey, can I borrow some bread? <laughs> When's the last time you had a neighbor showed up and, show up and do that? See, we don't understand this. And yet to get into a, a, a community context, Jesus goes, put yourself there and imagine it. Imagine that you're the person that this friend comes and they're knocking on your door and they're saying, hey, I just had somebody, they traveled all day from the southern part of Israel up to Galilee and they're here, it's midnight, I have nothing to give them, can you help me out? And the friend is obviously going to be bothered and annoyed because one, he got woken up, right? And he was having great dreams about surfing on the Sea of Galilee. That's what you dream about back then. He's woken up. He knows how much work it will take to navigate through his house to go open the door. Because you have to understand, a Jewish home in that day and age usually had only two rooms. Sometimes two lower rooms or a lower room and an upper room. Most of the time, the family all resided in the lower room. So when they would lay down at night, the whole family would lay down on mats on the ground. And so if you've ever been in a sleeping party, sleeping, a slumber party, sleeping party, what's that? <laughs> Everyone's like, can we do one of those right now? Um, if you've ever been at a slumber party and you've had to walk over people without waking them up, like that's what the dad knew he would have to do, is he would have to be like, how do I not step on my kid's head and my wife's hand to get to the door? And so he goes, this is an inconvenience. And then even when I get to the door, I have to remove the barricade because they would have a wood piece that would go over the door to kind of barricade it at night. And he has to do that without waking them up. And so he's going, you know what, I'm sorry, I can't help. This is going to be a little too much. This is not prime timing. But it says, because of the shamelessness of the man at the door, or the audacity that he was not afraid to ask, he would. He would open the door and give him whatever he needs. And so Jesus is giving this encouragement to keep praying, even when it seems unreasonably timed, even when there's not a clear answer, because God, even more so than this friend, will rise and act on behalf of those in need. God is more than a friend. He's more than a neighbor. His relationship with us is enough reason for us to have the boldness to ask, knowing that he will give whatever we need. So this short picture deals with God's character in responding. But if that's not enough proof, there's another passage in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, that says the same thing, giving you the assurance that the Father hears your prayers and will respond. So if you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. It also comes up in Luke 11, 9 to 13. It'll be on the screen. And it says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds, and the one to who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, or a father among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Or if he asks for salad, will give him a Twinkie? That's not there. <laughs> if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things, and Luke says the Holy Spirit, to those who ask of him. And so Jesus, again, takes you into a community, a family relationship situation to get a picture and an image of making a request to a father. And there's a guy, there's a scholar named C.G. Glover, um, or H.G. Glover, one of the two. His name's not Grover, it's Glover. And he gives the whole picture of, he goes, 
if you have a child, do you understand this aspect that if a child's in the room and they need something from their parent, if the parent is near invisible, they'll ask out loud. If their parents are not near invisible, they will get up and seek around the house to find them. And if they find that their parents are in a room with the door closed and maybe even locked, that child will come up and go, Mom, 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 Mom. And they're like, get away, right? And he's going, that's the type of picture that Jesus is trying to paint here in coming to the Father, knowing that like a child going to its parent, we can go to God. And Jesus is offering this invitation to go and pray with assurance of response. And the key verb that comes out in this entire passage here is that word ask. It comes up six times in just these few verses. And Jesus is trying to get us to understand that you can ask expectantly of the Father in prayer. Ask is the main term that's associated with prayer, is to ask. But here's what's interesting. The present tense of each of those words, it's actually a present participle. Don't worry about that. It's the idea of you keep on doing it. So it's not that you ask once or you seek once or you knock once. It's you keep on asking, you keep on seeking, you keep on knocking. It's a continual action. But the action is balanced by the emphasis in the passage, which is the fact that the promises that God gives will happen. He will respond. He will be found. He will be opened. And so it's saying that if you persist in praying, knowing for sure that God will certainly respond, you're starting to pick it up about what prayer is. Now that word seek, when it says to seek, that's a word that often is the, with God as the, as, the, as the object and the kingdom as the object where it's saying anytime you're seeking, you are seeking after God. You're not seeking after your own things or what you think is the end goal. You seek after God. One of the best passages on it is Deuteronomy 4.29. says this, But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy has it. Exodus has it. The prophets pick up on it and they constantly are encouraging people to seek after God. And Jesus is saying the same thing, that when you go in prayer, you seek after God because God wants to be found by those who are seeking after him. Then when you knock, you knock waiting for the door to be opened. And it's not, it's not knocking just so that you can talk to the person. It's knocking so you can enter the place where they are. Now, to me, the best picture of knocking that I get in our day and age is when my kids go out for Halloween, right? And you go and you knock on the door. Now, even when the lights are out and it's clear that no one's home, I'll tell my kids, okay, we can pass this house. My daughter Lucy will still go to the door because she's addicted to sugar, and she will knock and keep knocking because she wants to go. And one time when she was about three, she would keep walking into people's houses, Right? So they're trying to give her candy, and she's like walking in going, this is nice. There's this idea of entering into a place. So what are you entering? Well, you're entering into the door of salvation. You're entering into God's rule. You're knocking so that you can enter into the kingdom. And so all these terms, ask, seek, and knock, are supposed to cover the full spectrum of all your desires and all your needs in view of the kingdom that Jesus has been talking about throughout all of the Sermon on the Mount. And then he gives this father-son example, which you're going to see is going to come up in some form in all these passages. That if one asks for everyday needs, they don't get what is harmful. 
If a child asks for the basic Galilean diet, bread, fish, and an egg, they are not going to get something harmful. Jesus wanted people to understand that if a parent who is even evil at their core is so cruel and so deceptive that they wouldn't give their child what they asked for, but then would trick them and give them something that they didn't want and that was harmful, he goes, even if a human parent wouldn't do that, how much more would I not do that? And so he's actually using this common Jewish argument, this idea of if the lesser is true, how much more? If those who are evil give good, good gifts, how much more is the greater truth that the heavenly Father, in whom there is no evil, will give good gifts? Jesus is trying to shift people's understanding in his day and age, and I feel like we're still needing that shift in our day and age to be reminded that God is someone you can trust. God is someone that you don't have to fear he's going to reject you because of one thing or some little thing or even something major. God does not act like human parents. God is wanting to hear. God wants to answer. And it's not just the mighty of God. It's not just prophets like Elijah or pastors that can pray to God and ask these things. You have a right as the child of God, someone's dependent on the Father, to ask of these things. And what does he give? Matthew says he gives us good things to those who ask him. Luke says he gives us the Holy Spirit. And Luke watched so much of the Holy Spirit and how it played out in the book of Acts. And so Luke knew that when it really comes to anything you think you need, physical, mental, emotional, whatever, the Holy Spirit is the one thing that is good enough to meet all those needs. And so he's saying that's the good stuff that God gives. And this promise would have amazed and actually troubled his disciples because this would be the first time that they would hear that they can pray to God in such a way like this and know that he hears and responds and answers. Do you need another example? Okay, I'll give you one. Luke 18, 1 to 8 is another parable. It's going to be up on the screen that Jesus used to show this aspect of the fact that God hears and responds. It goes like this. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down, literally means punch me in the eye, by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now this is one of those parables that I'm thankful for because it tells you the meaning right in the beginning. And if you're somebody that you're reading, ever, ever reading parables in Scripture and you're like, what does that mean? This one starts by telling you it's trying to teach you to pray always and not lose heart. To have a tenacious faith and a hopeful faith. Because the fear is that we will give up before our prayer is answered. That we will try once or twice, maybe three times, but then we'll give up. And the context of this comes right after Luke 17 where Jesus talks about the Son of Man coming and the tribulation the hard times that will come when the Son of Man comes in his full glory. 
And so the disciples naturally are becoming disheartened, and they're going, how are we going to make it through that? And how are we going to make it through now? And so Jesus goes, well, let me tell you something to show you that you keep praying always and not lose heart. And so he gives the two characters, the judge in the city who doesn't fear God or respect man, and a widow in the city. One's a male of notable status who doesn't epitomize the role of judge rightly because he does not fear God, which is one of the requirements of a judge, and he doesn't give a care about people. That's not a good person to have as a judge. She's a female of no power and privilege who knows what is right and what is wrong, but she has no male kinsman, nobody that can go and appeal for her, and she doesn't have enough money to bribe. And her adversary is obviously strong enough that this judge will not take any action. But what she does that Jesus highlights is she takes shocking initiative to keep going and asking rather than playing the hopeless victim. There's a lot of us that we default to the latter. And stuff happens in our life and we start playing hopeless victim. We start complaining about how hard things are and how things don't work out. And rather than praying and not losing heart and keeping asking God, we start gossiping and we start pity partying. And she takes this shocking initiative. And in Hebrew, there's this term chutzpah, right? And it's this idea of, of having boldness and, and, and willingness to go take action and take steps. And that's what she's doing. Is she has the chutzpah. Got to have the spit with it. The chutzpah to go and keep asking. And Jesus is saying, have, have that. And in the story, the judge goes on to act motivated by her astonishing behavior. And I love it because he humorously terms it that if she keeps asking him this way, it's like she's punching him in the eye. Which, get that picture of a little old woman coming up and cornering a judge and punching him in the face. And he's going, that's what it's going to feel like. So not because he cares about God or man, but because she keeps coming and asking, will he respond? And this is another one of those lesser to greater where Jesus says, if the unrighteous judge would do such a thing or say such a thing, how much more will God give justice? Because he's so much different than this judge. God will not delay over them. God will act speedily. And he's saying it's necessary that we keep praying and are faithful with full confidence that God responds to help his people. So that's three passages just on that reality that God hears and God responds. Now let's talk about how do we approach God in prayer aware of these truths. And so we're going to talk about how to pray. And we're going to start in private prayer. So go back to the book of Matthew. Matthew 6, verses 5 to 18. And Luke, um, Luke will come up in a little bit. We're going to just do Matthew 6, 5 to 8. Um, give you a second to get there and then we'll dive right in. It says, and when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words." Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Talk about some meaningful stuff. And this is more of the how not to pray. And he gives these two case studies. The first one is about praying in public. And Jesus doesn't say, don't ever pray in public. 
because Jesus actually prayed in public and with people quite often. But he's talking about the motive for when you pray out loud with other people. Because he says, it's not about the prayer that they love. It's not about the God they pray to that they love. They love themselves and they love people seeing them. And see, prayer normally would happen in the synagogues two, sometimes three times a day. And if you weren't at the synagogue or you couldn't make it to the synagogue, wherever you were, you would just stop and pray. But there were some people that they would make sure and they'd keep checking their watch and they would come up and get on the most busiest street corner in that position where you're like, I am in the perfect prayer position. Everyone can see me from three other corners, and now I can really pray. And he's saying, when they pray like that, when you go with that approach, they have received their reward. Because their reputation before people is their reward. But your reputation before God is what matters more than anything else. He says, rather, go into your room. And he's not just saying go into your like, bedroom, because again, going into the Jewish home, you had two rooms. They didn't have doors on them other than the outside door. The only part of the house that had a door on it on the inside was the storage room. And so Jesus is saying, go into the storage closet where you are shut out from others and you're shut in with God. And that's where you pray to your father who is in secret, where only God is the audience, where personal communication is between you and him and there's no one else to hear. It's people that can go and pray like that that shows that they are maturing as servants of the kingdom. And he says, when when you do that, your father who sees in secret will will reward you. And you know what's interesting is in those storage closets, that's where families would keep their most valuable treasures, is in the storage closet. And so he's actually making a play on where you pray and what you will receive. And he's saying, when you do that, you will receive the spiritual rewards from going and having a prayer life that's about you and God and not about you and God and others. That's where you'll get peace. That's where you'll get refreshment. That's where you'll get acceptance. That's where you'll get purpose. Because the issue is, is the the one who only prays in public when people are around and never in private has wrong motives and a weak prayer life. If the only time you pray is at church or in small group, or in terms where you're around other people and you never have a prayer time that's just you and God alone, you're in a bad spot. And Jesus wants us to hear that. Case study number two on how not to do it, he says, don't pray heaps of empty words, anxious as to whether God hears. And he says, don't heap up empty phrases. And what would happen is in the Gentile world, in the Roman Greco world, they would try to say many words and they would almost be stammering trying to say so many things. And they would give these long prayers with long formulas because they believed there was power in the words. And so the more words you used, the greater the power. The idea here is that They believed that you had to say many words or certain type of words to be heard. And Jesus is trying to undo that. And he's saying, we've already learned that God hears and answers even if your words are few. Even if they're not well-timed. God hears and God answers. And he says, don't be like the Gentiles who are anxious about being heard. See, the Roman Greco people, they would repeat things to get their God's attention. They would pile up names of gods hoping that one of them would be effective, that one of them would ensure that they were heard correctly and they would convince, and that one of their words would convince the God that their request was worth granting. And as I read this and been studying this, I realized that for myself, and I believe a lot of us, is that we pray a lot more like the Gentiles than we pray according to what Jesus taught 
that we don't know what to say and we just kind of keep saying stuff hoping that maybe God will catch one of the words and respond. But we're not supposed to pray like that. We're, we're supposed to pray in a meaningful way, not a mechanical way that's anxious and doesn't know whether he will respond. God will respond. And look how he finishes it. He says, your father knows your needs before you ask. Now, that's providential knowledge of God. How does that make you feel, knowing that God knows your need before you ask? Now, some of you will go, well, why do we ask then? <laughs> right? Because that's naturally, and people go, why do you have to pray to God if God already knows? This is why. Prayer is not for the purpose of informing God or persuading him. It's expressing to him and yourself the inability you have to meet that need. God already knows what your need is, but he needs you to say, I can't do that. I need you to do it. It's trying to teach you how to have dependence on God. That's the type of prayer that we're supposed to bring. So what does a genuine Christian prayer look like? Let's go into the Lord's Prayer and finish our time kind of unpacking this. So this is in Matthew 6, 9 to 15, and Luke 11, 1 to 4. It's going to be uh, up on the screen here. It says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven those have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now talk about a basic, simple prayer that's full of so much to say within it. And Jesus doesn't tell you in it, in either Matthew or Luke, the occasion, the setting, or the time. He assumed that wherever and whenever you prayed, you would use something like this as a guideline to pray simply and meaningfully as follows. But what he prays has so much Hebrew and Aramaic core to it that it was familiar to his disciples, and we have to recognize that he was taking something that was familiar so that people would learn how to take the ways they've prayed and focused it according to what the Messiah was doing with the kingdom. And so there's actually a prayer called the Kaddish Hashem, which was called the Hallowing the Name prayer, that people would pray in the synagogues. They would pray that, and they would also pray something called the 18 benedictions. And Jesus takes those, and he funnels them into a prayer that's focused on our Father. And so he takes it, into this context. And so he starts by saying our Father in heaven and he starts with this language of us. That we pray to the same God, that we share a relationship with the same Father. And that us comes from Jesus' command to follow him as a son. As a son, We become in partnership with Jesus that we get invited to pray alongside of him to his heavenly Father. We always tend to think that it's just Jesus as Father. He's saying no, he's our Father. That distinctive relationship I have with my Father, you have with the Father. And he wants you to recognize that, that this is a personal Father. And you may have heard this before, but you know this, this prayer comes originally from Aramaic, and then it was translated into the Greek. And they, they could have used any word, there's like two or three different words they could have used for Father. And they decided to use this Aramaic word, Ava, or Abba. 
And it's baby talk in Aramaic for dada. It's this personal term of father to God. Now, Israel would call God father of Israel. But they would never have it be that specific of a relationship. But Jesus is saying, you get to share in this relationship with the father. I'm trying to show you the father. He's doing that all throughout the gospels. So that you will identify with him in this relationship of son, daughter, and father. And that was amazing. That was brand new for the disciples. That was brand new for the early people that encountered the Christian faith. Because fatherhood was never about that. But he says he's not just our father. He's our father in heaven. He's in the sphere from which he affects his rule and his will on earth. And that's where his authority begins over creation and where he rules over things. And so you have this personal relationship with the father that's near to you. But he's the father who is above all. And he relates to us from that sphere. And so he's a mighty father above everything that you can have a distinct relationship with. And then he goes into those three petitions and he goes, hallowed be your name. We don't use the word hallowed very much. If I were to ask you, what does hallowed mean? You'd be like, Halloween? Because that's the only context that we use that term. Hallowed means to set apart his name in honor and glory so that he will have the awe and value he deserves. It's to acknowledge God for who he is as above us. And so when you pray this, you're not praying it just as a statement. You're praying it as a request that God would be blessed in this way. In that Jewish synagogue prayer, it says it very similar. It says, exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world which he created according to his will. This is God making his name holy. It's not something you can actually do. You can't make God more holy. Only God can make his name holy. But here's what's interesting is when it says hallowed be your name, it's an action that's only at one point in time. It's not something that happens continually. So what's that one point of time? It's that future, once for all, completed time where his name is made holy, where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is the Holy One. That is when that final time will come and we ask God for that time to come and we keep praying in anticipation for that. Because when you're praying for his name to be made holy, you're praying for the person to be made holy. Because a name was essentially a person. In Isaiah 52, 6, it says to know God's name is to know God. And so it was an issue of realizing God as the Holy One versus his name being profaned versus mankind's sin resisting the holiness of God. It's saying, God, get to that point where everything is right in the world again, the way you created it to be. Let us live in response to God's name being holy so other people see that. And then he keeps going and he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where again, you're calling for God to set everything right and restore things to that perfect purpose that he had. His kingdom come is what Jesus is saying all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Live as kingdom people. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount and in this passage, when he uses the word you, it's this emphatic you saying, the rest of the world lives like this, but you as followers of the kingdom and servants of the kingdom live like this. Because you are kingdom followers and you seek his kingdom come. And his kingdom come is his authority and his rule being spread out. And when God's full rule comes, then Satan's rule is done. Amen? 
but it's not fully here yet. It's, it's here because it came and ushered with Jesus, but it's not here in its completion. And so you still are asking and praying in anticipation for his kingdom to come in its fullness. And when I was driving to church last night, this was the verse that God was like poking me in the chest and going, Matt, do you anticipate and live for my kingdom? Do you anticipate that? Do you even want it to come? And I really had to like, while I'm driving, I didn't take my hands off the wheel and go, whoa. But I, I sat there and I went, I don't think I do. I know about his kingdom. I'll preach about his kingdom, but do I anticipate it? Or I want it to come in its fullness? And God rocked me and said, now live in that anticipation. And then he says, your will be done. You pray that God's will will be done. And the connection of kingdom with his will is everything because his will is done when his purposes and his desires are laid out. And even in, in Matthew twenty six thirty nine, Jesus models this, seeking after God's will. When he's in the garden praying, and he's saying, God, if there's another way where I don't have to go through the torture and the pain, do it, but your will be done. Because he gets it that it's about God's desire and God's purpose happening. But not your will to be done just in heaven, but your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because in heaven, God's will works seamlessly. He can command an angel and he'll go do it. And everything's working like clockwork. But the minute his will hits earth, our sin, our flesh resists it. And it's not that our sin is more powerful than God. It's because God in his mercy and his grace doesn't want to steamroll us yet. He's holding out his hand still to everyone going, I want to redeem you. I want to justify you. So I'm not going to force my will on you. I want you to desire my will. I want you to pray for my will. And so when you pray, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're putting yourself on God's side. You're willing to be part of the cause of God. This is a prayer of someone who sees that this world is not as it should and that only God can set things straight. And that when you set, and when you, when you set your right priorities in this way, you're going to be less likely to pray selfishly for your name or for your own little empire or for your silly little will. You're going to pray for the things that matter. Not just the first part of the prayer. The last three petitions, last three requests, ask, concern us directly. We can appeal for ourselves because we've united ourselves to God's cause. And so it says, give us this day our daily bread. And that giving is just asking for God to continually give. But that word daily has actually been one of the most researched Greek words in like almost all of the New Testament. Because they were so confused on what daily means. And you're like, doesn't daily just mean daily? Well, they were confused on whether it means necessary for life or the following day's bread or today's bread or tomorrow's bread. But the big thing was is they were going, God gives you what you need, whether it's he's giving you today what you need for tomorrow or he's giving you today what you need for today. The reality is, is that God gives. It asks God to provide as the need arises and the whole thing is connected with the passage in Exodus 16 of Israel receiving manna, right? Because they would go out every day and collect enough for the next day. 
And then when they came to the Sabbath, God would let them collect enough on the Friday to make them get through Friday, Saturday, before the Sunday stuff came. Right? And so it's asking God to provide as the need arises. And he's providing not just bread, but Luke uses the word food. It will say bread in your text, but the Greek word is the word for food. And when, so when you're praying for this, you're going, God, give me the most basic things I need to survive, food and water. But then I always read this and I go, what does this look like in a world of Costco? <laughs> right? I mean, you go and you buy loaves of bread that you freeze and you can make last like two months. Right? We have taken over this role. And so it's a lot harder to pray this. But this is how I see us being able to pray it, is you, in asking this, include yourself in the prayer by going, God, you give me, please, the strength, the ability, and the discretion for my needs so that I can go and work my job, so that I can go, and that whether or not you have somebody drop bread off on my doorstep or you make it appear on my table or I have to go buy it at Costco, that God you are the one that's giving it. So include me in whatever way I need to be included. But what this is teaching is a trusting dependence on God for the real priorities in our life. But then it moves into the more spiritual, and it says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, those who have sinned against us. Sin, which is the word Luke uses rather than debts, places us in debt to God, owing him because of the things we've taken, the things that we've done against him. And he's saying that God will forgive according to his grace, and that should lead us to forgive. And just as bread is important to the human body, forgiveness is as important to the life and health of the soul as food is for the body. If you have something against a person, that will eat away at your soul. If you have something that you've done against God, it will eat away at your soul. And so forgiveness from God and forgiveness of others is vital, which is why we pray for it. And here's the thing that's interesting, going in line with everything we've been talking about. The context of this relationship of forgiveness is not judicial. It's the relationship of a child to the father. And I, feel, I thought that was really amazing, that it's a picture that goes again into the home of a relationship of forgiveness between a father and a son. Which I haven't said this in the other services, but if you're a parent and you know that you have to forgive one of your kids, do not let today finish without that. If you're a child and you have something with your parent and you haven't been able to show forgiveness, you need to pray and you need to go and reconcile that today because it's going to bring life to your soul once again. Now let's jump past this to the end of the prayer really quickly in verses 14 to 15. It says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive them, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And at first you read that and you go, wait, does that mean that if I don't forgive, I won't be forgiven? No, he's trying to say that if my forgiveness, my mercy is happening in your life, you naturally will live that out. And if you went and looked at Matthew 18, 21 to 35, there's another parable of the unforgiving servant that paints that picture exactly. For the sake of time, I'll let you go look at that. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. So it goes on and it says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now it's moving into the moral and it's moving into preventative medicine <laughs> where you're saying, God, I don't want to have to deal with temptation. 
Except you're going to see that it means way more than that. A kingdom servant who is maturing should rely less and less on prayers of forgiveness, like we just read, and more and more on prayers for protection. And so what happens is in that temptation, temptation has to do with inward seduction and battles happening on the inside. And the aspect of temptation, whether positive or negative, always has to do with one's relationship to God. And what you're saying when you're saying, God, lead us not into temptation, is you're not saying, God, you lead me into it. You're saying, God, in any present temptation, which is going to be inevitable, how can you protect and lead me safely through or away from it? Because the reality is, is you will experience temptation. You can't ask God to remove it from your life. But you can ask God to guide you through it so that in that temptation you do not sin. And so you say, lead us not. You are the only one who can help us. You can only one who can help us avoid entering into it. And that's incredibly important because of the last line. Because you have to deliver us, God, from evil. From the evil or the evil one. Instead of temptation trying to lead us away, we call for God to intervene and rescue us from the battle that's there right in front of us. Now, some of you might have noticed that it doesn't have the very familiar doxology that is in some, some translations of Scripture. And that's because in most manuscripts, that last line, for yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever, amen, isn't in more than 10% of the manuscripts they have of the Gospels. But it's a very common line in the end of all Jewish prayers. And so they believe the Christian church did add it in to the Lord's Prayer. So I say... You can state it in the Lord's Prayer anytime you want because it's a natural closing of that prayer to declare these things. So a genuine prayer to the Father that we get a chance to share. I got one more passage for you. I'm just going to say a couple words on it for time. But if you jump over to Luke 18, 9 to 14, Jesus gives one more picture to show you the heart you need to have when you go to him in prayer, knowing that he hears, knowing that he responds, knowing that he answers. Luke 18, 9 to 14, it says this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so this tells you what kind of prayer it is that God accepts. At the heart, at the core. It's the one that depends on his mercy and recognizes the true God that you're praying to. And so the Pharisee, did not realize that in prayer you have to throw out any, any and all pride and any and all contempt for others. It's not about you when you pray. The strength of our, of our prayers aren't in our words or in us. It's in the power that God hears it. The tax collector got it that when he prayed, he can approach God knowing that we are broken and need his mercy. When you go to God in that way, 
you can pray every time because you're going to realize I need you. I depend on you like a little child with their dad. Do you notice that Jesus in all these stories keeps taking us into relational context? Neighbor, friend, judge, widow, father, son. He keeps painting all these pictures because that was the Jewish way to help us understand the relationship we have to God in prayer. You are praying to a God that is your daddy. You are praying to a God that hears you and answers you. That is incredibly powerful. It makes talking to God more than just something to work on. It makes it something that's a necessity. And that approach will happen when we know we can go confidently before him in prayer as his kingdom people. John Calvin says, nothing is better shaped to excite us to prayer than that full conviction that we shall be heard by our dad. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, we we praise your name. We thank you that you're a God that hears and a God that responds, that you are the Father in heaven, that you are above all the chaos of stuff that we cause. And yet, Lord, you have this distinct, intimate relationship that like one of my little kids running around the house wanting to ask for me or seek after me or knock and come into my room because they want to talk to me, that you allow us to do that with you. God, we want your name to be made holy in our lives. We want your name to be holy and we anticipate that final day when your kingdom will come in all of its fullness and every person will recognize that and it's no longer anyone profaning or resisting the name of the Holy One of Israel. May your will be done. May it be done here, God. Help us to submit our lives to your will and live in anticipation for your will coming. God, give us everything we need today for what we have going on tomorrow so we won't be anxious, so we won't worry. God, forgive us our sins because we have a lot. And teach us how to forgive others. God, guide us and navigate us through temptation because we don't want to keep sinning against you. And rescue us from the evil that surrounds us, God, from the attacks of the evil one. We praise you for being the Father who hears and the Father who acts. And we love you and we pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Everyone said, Amen. Amen.